0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today begins part one of a story by Bret Hart called An Episode of Fiddletown. It's a story that questions what real motherhood is all about and proves that it isn't just giving birth to someone that makes a mother, but it's the sacrifice that a mother makes for her child that matters the most. It's a fantastic story, and it's going to take a lot of unexpected twists and turns. In 1858, Fiddletown considered her a very pretty woman. She had a quantity of light chestnut hair, a good figure, a dazzling complexion, and a certain languid grace which passed easily for gentle womanliness. She always dressed becomingly, and in what Fiddletown accepted as the latest fashion. She had only two blemishes. One of her velvety eyes, when examined closely, had a slight cast, And her left cheek bore a small scar left by a single drop of vitriol. Happily, the only drop of an entire phial, thrown upon her by one of her own jealous sex, that reached the pretty face it was intended to mar. But when the observer had studied the eyes sufficiently to notice this defect, he was generally incapacitated for criticism, and even the scar on her cheek was thought by some to add piquancy to her smile. The youthful editor of the Fiddletown Avalanche had said privately that it was an exaggerated dimple. Colonel Starbottle was instantly reminded of the beautifying patches of the days of Queen Anne, but more particularly, sir, of the blankish beautiful woman that, blank you, you ever laid your two blank eyes upon, a Creole woman, sir, in New Orleans, and this woman had a scar, a line extending from her eye to her blank chin, And this woman, sir, thrilled you, sir, maddened you, absolutely sent your blank soul to perdition with her blank fascination. And one day I said to her, Celeste, how in the blank did you come by that beautiful scar? And she said to me, Star, there isn't another white man that I'd confide in but you. But I made that scar myself, purposely. These were her very words, sir, and perhaps you think it a blank lie, sir. But I'll put up any blank sum you can name and prove it. Indeed, most of the male population of Fiddletown were or had been in love with her. Of this number, about one-half believed that their love was returned, with the exception, possibly, of her own husband. He alone had been known to express skepticism. The name of the gentleman who enjoyed this infelicitous distinction was Trethrig. He had been divorced from an excellent wife to marry this Fiddletown enchantress. She also had been divorced— "'but it was hinted that some previous experiences of hers "'in that legal formality had made it perhaps less novel "'and probably less sacrificial. "'I would not have it inferred from this "'that she was deficient in sentiment "'or devoid of its highest moral expression. "'Her intimate friend had written, "'on the occasion of her second divorce, "'The cold world does not understand Clara yet. "'And Colonel Starbottle had remarked blankly "'that with the exception of a single woman "'in Opelousa's parish,' Louisiana. She had more soul than the whole caboodle of them put together. Few indeed could read those lines entitled In Felicimus, commencing Why Waves No Cypress or This Brow, originally published in the Avalanche, over the signature of The Lady Clare, without feeling the tear of sensibility tremble on his eyelids, or the glow of virtuous indignation at the low brutality and pitiable jocularity of the Dutch flat intelligencer. Which the next week had suggested the exotic character of the Cypress and its entire absence from Fiddletown as a reasonable answer to the query. Indeed, it was this tendency to elaborate her feelings in a metrical manner and deliver them to the cold world through the medium of the newspapers that first attracted the attention of Trethrig. Several poems descriptive of the effects of California scenery upon a too sensitive soul and of the vague yearnings for the infinite which an enforced study of the heartlessness of California society produced in the poetic breast, impressed Mr. Trethrick, who was then driving a six-mule freight wagon between Knight's Ferry and Stockton, to seek out the unknown poetess. Mr. Trethrick was himself dimly conscious of a certain hidden sentiment in his own nature, and it is possible that some reflections on the vanity of his pursuit— "'he supplied several mining camps with whiskey and tobacco, "'in conjunction with the dreariness of the dusty plain "'on which he habitually drove, "'may have touched some cord in sympathy "'with this sensitive woman. "'Howbeit, after a brief courtship, "'as brief as was consistent with some previous legal formalities, "'they were married, "'and Mr. Trethrick brought his blushing bride to Fiddletown, "'or Fidelatown, as Mrs. Trethrick preferred to call it in her poems.' "'The union was not a felicitous one. "'It was not long before Mr. Tretthrick discovered "'that the sentiment he had fostered "'while freedom between Stockton and Knight's Ferry "'was different from that which his wife had evolved "'from the contemplation of California scenery "'and her own soul. "'Being a man of imperfect logic, "'this caused him to beat her, "'and she, being equally faulty in deduction, "'was impelled to a certain degree of unfaithfulness "'on the same premise. "'Then Mr. Trethrick began to drink.' and Mrs. Trethrick to contribute regularly to the columns of The Avalanche. It was at this time that Colonel Starbottle discovered a similarity in Mrs. Tretrick's verse to The Genius of Sappho, and pointed it out to the citizens of Fiddletown in a two-columned criticism signed A.S., also published in The Avalanche, and supported by extensive quotation. As The Avalanche did not possess a font of Greek type, the editor was obliged to reproduce the Locadian numbers in the ordinary Roman letter, to the intense disgust of Colonel Starbottle, and the vast delight of Fiddletown, who saw fit to accept the text as an excellent imitation of Choctaw, a language with which the colonel, as a whilom resident of the Indian territories, was supposed to be familiar. Indeed, the next week's Intelligencer contained some vile doggerel supposed to be an answer to Mrs. Trethrig's poem ostensibly written by the wife of a digger Indian chief, accompanied by a glowing eulogium signed A.S.S. The result of all this jocularity was briefly given in a later copy of The Avalanche. It read, "'An unfortunate rencounter took place on Monday last "'between the Honorable Jackson Flash of the Dutch Flat Intelligencer "'and the well-known Colonel Starbottle of this place, "'in front of the Eureka Saloon.' Two shots were fired by the parties without injury to either, although it is said that a passing Chinaman received fifteen buckshot in the calves of his legs from the colonel's double-barreled shotgun, which were not intended for him. John will learn to keep out of the way of Melican man's firearms thereafter. The cause of the affray is not known, although it is hinted that there is a lady in the case. The rumor that points to a well-known and beautiful poetess whose lucubrations have often graced our columns "'seems to gain credence from those that are posted. "'Meanwhile, the passiveness displayed by Trethrick "'under these trying circumstances "'was fully appreciated in the gulches. "'The old man's head is level,' said one long-booted philosopher. "'If the colonel kills Flash, Mrs. Trethrick is avenged. "'If Flash drops the colonel, Trethrick is all right. "'Either way, he's got a sure thing. "'During this delicate condition of affairs,' Mrs. Tretrick one day left her husband's home and took refuge at the Fiddletown Hotel, with only the clothes she had on her back. Here she stayed for several weeks, during which period it is only justice to say that she bore herself with the strictest propriety. It was a clear morning in early spring that Mrs. Tretrick, unattended, left the hotel, and walked down the narrow street toward the fringe of dark pines which indicated the extreme limits of Fiddletown. The few loungers at that early hour were preoccupied with the departure of the Wingtown coach at the other extremity of the street, and mrs Traddwick reached the suburbs of the settlement without discomposing observation. Here she took a cross street or road running at right angles with the main thoroughfare of Fiddletown and passing through a belt of woodland. It was evidently the exclusive and aristocratic avenue of the town. The dwellings were few, ambitious and uninterrupted by shops, and here she was joined by Colonel Starbottle. The gallant colonel, notwithstanding that he bore the swelling port which usually distinguished him, that his coat was tightly buttoned and his boots tightly fitting, and that his cane, hooked over his arm, swung jauntily, was not entirely at his ease. Mrs. Trethrick, however, vouchsafed him a gracious smile and a glance of her dangerous eyes, and the colonel, with an embarrassed cough and a slight strut, took his place at her side. "'The coast is clear,' said the colonel, "'and Trepthrick is over at Dutch flat on a spree. "'There is no one in the house but a Chinaman, "'and you need fear no trouble from him.' "'I,' he continued, with a slight inflation of the chest "'that imperiled the security of his button, "'I will see to it that you are protected in the removal of your property.' "'I'm sure it's very kind of you, and so disinterested,' simpered the lady as they walked along. "'It's so pleasant to meet someone who has soul, someone to sympathize with in a community so hardened and heartless as this.' And Mrs. Tretrick cast down her eyes, but not until they wrought their perfect and accepted work upon her companion. Uh, "'Yes, certainly, of course,' said the colonel, glancing nervously up and down the street. "'Yes, certainly.' Perceiving, however, that there was no one in sight or hearing, he proceeded at once to inform Mrs. Trethrick that the great trouble of his life, in fact, had been the possession of too much soul, that many women, as a gentleman she would excuse him, of course, from mentioning names, but many beautiful women had often sought his society, but being deficient, madam, absolutely deficient, in this quality, he could not reciprocate but when two natures thoroughly in sympathy, despising alike the sordid trammels of a low and vulgar community and the conventional restraints of a hypocritical society, when two souls in perfect accord met and mingled in poetical union, then, but here the colonel's speech, which had been remarkable for a certain whisky and watery fluency, grew husky, almost inaudible, and decidedly incoherent. Possibly Mrs. trethrick may have heard something like it before, and was enabled to fill the hiatus. Nevertheless, the cheek that was on the side of the colonel was quite virginal and bashfully conscious until they reached their destination. It was a pretty little cottage, quite fresh and warm with paint, very pleasantly relieved against a platoon of pines, some of whose foremost files had been displaced to give freedom to the fenced enclosure in which it sat. In the vivid sunlight and perfect silence, it had a new, uninhabited look, as if the carpenters and painters had just left it. At the farther end of the lot a Chinaman was stolidly digging, but there was no other sign of occupancy. The coast, as the colonel had said, was indeed clear. Mrs. Tretrick paused at the gate. The colonel would have entered with her, but was stopped by a gesture. "'Come for me in a couple of hours, and I shall have everything packed,' she said, as she smiled." and extended her hand. The colonel seized and pressed it with great fervor. Perhaps the pressure was slightly returned, for the gallant colonel was impelled to inflate his chest and trip away as smartly as his stubby-toed, high-heeled boots would permit. When he had gone, Mrs. Tretrick opened the door, listened a moment in the deserted hall, and then ran quickly upstairs to what had been her bedroom. "'We'll return with an episode of Fiddletown by Bret Hart "'right after these sponsor messages. "'And now back to our story. "'Everything there was unchanged as on the night she left it. "'On the dressing-table stood her band-box, "'as she remembered to have left it when she took out her bonnet. "'On the mantel lay the other glove she had forgotten in her flight. "'The two lower drawers of the bureau were half-open.' she had forgotten to shut them, and on its marble top lay her shawl-pin and soiled cuff. What other recollections came upon her I know not, but she suddenly grew quite white, shivered, and listened with a beating heart, and her hand upon the door. Then she stepped to the mirror, and half fearfully, half curiously, parted with her fingers the braids of her blonde hair above her little pink ear, until she came upon an ugly, half-heeled scar. She gazed at this, moving her pretty head up and down to get a better light upon it, until the slight cast in her velvety eyes became very strongly marked indeed. Then she turned away with a light, reckless, foolish laugh, and ran to the closet where hung her precious dresses. These she inspected nervously, and missing suddenly a favorite black silk from its accustomed peg, for a moment thought she should have painted. But discovering it the next instant lying upon a trunk where she had thrown it, a feeling of thankfulness to a superior being who protects the friendless for the first time sincerely thrilled her. Then, albeit she was hurried for time, she could not resist trying the effect of a certain lavender neck-ribbon upon the dress she was then wearing, before the mirror. And then suddenly she became aware of a child's voice close beside her, and she stopped. And the child's voice repeated, "'Is it Mama?' Mrs. Tretrick faced quickly about. Standing in the doorway was a little girl of six or seven. Her dress had been originally fine, but was torn and dirty, and her hair, which was very violent red, was tumbled serio-comically about her forehead. For all this she was a picturesque little thing, even through whose childish timidity there was a certain self-sustained air which is apt to come upon children who are left much to themselves.' She was holding under her arm a rag-doll, apparently of her own workmanship, and nearly as large as herself, a doll with a cylindrical head and features roughly indicated with charcoal. A long shawl, evidently belonging to a grown person, dropped from her shoulders and swept the floor. The spectacle did not excite Mrs. Tretrick's delight. Perhaps she had but a small sense of humour. Certainly, when the child still standing in the doorway, again asked, "'Is it Mamma?" She answered sharply, "'No, it isn't,' and turned a severe look upon the intruder. The child retreated a step, and then, gaining courage with the distance, said in deliciously imperfect speech, "'Dow way, then! Why don't you do way?' But Mrs. Trethrick was eyeing the shawl. Suddenly she whipped it off the child's shoulders and said angrily, how dared you take my things, you bad child? Is it yours? Then you are my mamma, ain't you? You are mamma," she continued gleefully, and before Mrs. Tretter could avoid her, she had dropped her doll and, catching the woman's skirts in both hands, was dancing up and down before her. "What's your name, child?" said Mrs. Tretter coldly, removing the small and not very white hands from her garments. TERRY. TERRY? YETH, TERRY, Caroline. CAROLINE? YETH, Caroline TRETHRICK. Whose child are you? demanded Mrs. Trethrick, still more coldly, to keep down a rising fear. Why yours? said the little creature with a laugh. I'm your little girl. You're my mamma, my new mama. Don't you know my old mamma's drawn away? "'Never to turn back any more? "'I don't live with my old mama now. "'I live with you and papa.' "'How long have you been here?' "'asked Mrs. Tretrick, snappishly. "'I think it's three days,' said Carrie, reflectively. "'You think? "'Don't you know?' sneered Mrs. Trethrick. "'Then where did you come from?' "'Carrie's lip began to work under this sharp cross-examination. "'With a great effort and a small gulp,' "'She got the better of it and answered. "'Papa, Papa fetched me, from Miss Simmons, from Sacramento, last week.' "'Last week? You said three days just now,' returned Mrs. Tretrick, with severe deliberation. "'I mean a month,' said Carrie, now utterly adrift in sheer helplessness and confusion. "'Do you know what you're talking about?' demanded Mrs. Tretrick shrilly. "'restraining an impulse to shake the little figure before her "'and precipitate the truth by specific gravity. "'But the flaming red head here suddenly disappeared "'in the folds of Mrs. Tretvick's dress, "'as if it were trying to extinguish itself forever. "'There now, stop that sniffling,' said Mrs. Tretvick, "'extricating her dress from the moist embraces of the child "'and feeling exceedingly uncomfortable. "'Wipe your face now, and run away, and don't bother.' Stop, she continued, as Carrie moved away. Where's your papa? He's torn away, too. He's sick. He's been torn. She hesitated. Two. Three days. Who takes care of you, child? said Mrs. Trethrick, eyeing her curiously. John, the Chinaman. I trust myself. John tooks and makes the beds. Well, now, run away and behave yourself. "'And don't bother me any more,' said Mrs. Tretrick, remembering the object of her visit. "'Stop! Where are you going?' she added, as the child began to ascend the stairs, dragging the long doll after her by one helpless leg. "'I'm doing upstairs to play and be dood, and no bother mamma." "'I ain't your Mama!' shouted Mrs. Tretrick, and then she swiftly re-entered her bedroom and slammed the door." "'Once inside, she drew forth a large trunk from the closet "'and set to work with querulous and fretful haste to pack her wardrobe. "'She tore her best dress in taking it from the hook on which it hung. "'She scratched her soft hands twice with an ambushed pin. "'All the while, she kept up an indignant commentary "'on the events of the past few moments. "'She said to herself she saw it all. "'Trethric had sent for this child of his first wife.' this child of whose existence he had never seemed to care, just to insult her, to fill her place. Doubtless the first wife herself would follow soon, or perhaps there would be a third. Red hair, not auburn, but red. Of course the child, this Caroline, looked like its mother, and if so, she was anything but pretty. Or the whole thing had been prepared this red-haired child, the image of its mother, had been kept at a convenient distance at Sacramento, ready to be sent for when needed. She remembered his occasional visits there on business, as he said. Perhaps the mother already was there, but no, she had gone east. Nevertheless, Mrs. Tretrick, in her then state of mind, preferred to dwell upon the fact that she might be there. She was dimly conscious, also, of a certain satisfaction in exaggerating her feelings. Surely no woman had ever been so shamefully abused. In fancy, she sketched a picture of herself sitting alone and deserted, at sunset, among the fallen columns of a ruined temple, in a melancholy yet graceful attitude, while her husband drove rapidly away in a luxurious coach-and-pour, with a red-haired woman at his side. Sitting upon the trunk she had just packed, "'She partly composed a lugubrious poem "'describing her sufferings as "'Wandering, alone, and poorly clad, "'she came upon her husband and another, "'flaunting in silks and diamonds. "'She pictured herself dying of consumption, "'brought on by sorrow. "'A beautiful wreck, yet still fascinating, "'gazed upon adoringly by the editor of the Avalanche "'and Colonel Starbottle. "'And where was Colonel Starbottle all this while? "'Why didn't he come?' He at least understood her. He— She laughed the reckless, light laugh of a few moments before. And then her face grew suddenly grave, as it had not a few moments before. What was that little red haired imp doing all this time? Why was she so quiet? She opened the door noiselessly and listened. She fancied that she heard, above the multitudinous small noises and creakings and warpings of the vacant house, a smaller voice— "'singing on the floor above. "'This, as she remembered, "'was only an open attic "'that had been used as a storeroom. "'With a half-guilty consciousness, "'she crept softly upstairs "'and, pushing the door partly open, "'looked within. "'Athwart the long, low-studded attic, "'a slant sunbeam from a single small window "'lay, filled with dancing motes, and only half-illuminating "'the barren, dreary apartment.' In the ray of this sunbeam she saw the child's glowing hair as if crowned by a red aureole, as she sat upon the floor with her exaggerated doll between her knees. She appeared to be talking to it, and it was not long before Mrs. Trethrick observed that she was rehearsing the interview of the half-hour before. She catechized the doll severely, cross-examining it in regard to the duration of its stay there, and generally on the measure of time. The imitation of Mrs. Trethrick's manner, "'was exceedingly successful, "'and the conversation almost a literal reproduction, "'with a single exception. "'After she had informed the doll that she was not her mother, "'at the close of the interview she added pathetically, "'that if she was good, very good, "'she might be her mama and love her very much. "'I have already hinted that Mrs. Tretrick "'was deficient in a sense of humour. "'Perhaps it was for this reason "'that the whole scene affected her most unpleasantly.' "'and the conclusion sent the blood tingling to her cheek. "'There was something, too, inconceivably lonely in the situation. "'The unfurnished vacant room, the half-lights, the monstrous doll, "'whose very size seemed to give a pathetic significance to its speechlessness, "'the smallness of the one animate, self-centered figure. "'All these touched more or less deeply the half-poetic sensibilities of the woman.' She could not help utilizing the impression as she stood there, and thought, what a fine poem might be constructed from this material if the room were a little darker, the child lonelier, say, sitting beside a dead mother's bier, and the wind wailing in the turrets. And then she suddenly heard footsteps at the door below, and recognized the tread of the colonel's cane. She flew swiftly down the stairs, and encountered the colonel in the hall. "'Here she poured into his astonished ear "'a voluble and exaggerated statement of her discovery, "'and a indignant recital of her wrongs. "'Don't tell me the whole thing wasn't arranged beforehand, "'for I know it was,' she almost screamed. "'And I think,' she added, "'of the heartlessness of the wretch "'leaving his own child alone here in that way.' "'It's a blanking shame,' stammered the colonel, "'without the least idea of what he was talking about. "'In fact,' utterly unable as he was to comprehend a reason for the woman's excitement, with his estimate of her character, I fear he showed it more plainly than he intended. He stammered, expanded his chest, looked stern, gallant, tender, but all unintelligently. Mrs. Tretwick, for an instant, experienced a sickening doubt of the existence of nature's imperfect divinity. "'It's of no use,' said Mrs. Tretwick with a sudden vehemence, in answer to some inaudible remark of the colonel's, and withdrawing her hand from the fervid grasp of that ardent and sympathetic man. "'It's of no use. My mind is made up. You can send for my trunk as soon as you like. But I shall stay here and confront that man with the proof of his vileness. I will put him face to face with his infamy.' I do not know whether Colonel Starbottle thoroughly appreciated the convincing proof of Tretrick's unfaithfulness and malignity afforded by the damning evidence of the existence of Trethrick's own child in his own house. He was dimly aware, however, of some unforeseen obstacle to the perfect expression of the infinite longing of his own sentimental nature. But before he could say anything, Carrie appeared on the landing above them, looking timidly, and yet half-critically, at the pair. "'That's her,' said Mrs. Tretrick excitedly, in her deepest emotions, in either verse or prose.' she rose above a consideration of grammatical construction. "'Ah!' said the colonel, with a sudden assumption of parental affection and jocularity that was glaringly unreal and affected. "'Ah! Pretty little girl! Pretty little girl! How do you do? How are you? You find yourself pretty well, do you, pretty little girl?' The colonel's impulse also was to expand his chest and swing his cane— until it occurred to him that this action might be ineffective with a child of six or seven. Carrie, however, took no immediate notice of this advance, but further discomposed the chivalrous colonel by running quickly to mrs. Trethrick and hiding herself, as if for protection, in the folds of her gown. Nevertheless, the colonel was not vanquished. Falling back into an attitude of respectful admiration, he pointed out a marvelous resemblance to the Madonna and Child. Mrs. Tretrick simpered, but did not dislodge Carrie as before. There was an awkward pause for a moment, and then Mrs. Tretrick, motioning significantly to the child, said in a whisper, Go now. Don't come here again, but meet me tonight at the hotel. She extended her hand. The colonel bent over gallantly and raising his hat. The next moment was gone. Do you think... "'said Mrs. Trethrick, with an embarrassed voice "'and a prodigious blush, "'looking down and addressing the fiery curls "'just visible in the folds of her dress. "'Do you think you will be good "'if I let you stay in here and sit with me?' "'And let me tell you Mama?' queried Carrie, looking up. "'And let you call me Mama,' "'assented Miss Trethrick with an embarrassed laugh. Yeef, said Carrie promptly. "'They entered the bedroom together, "'Carrie's eye instantly caught sight of the trunk. "'Are you doin' away at Dan, Mama?' she said, "'with a quick nervous look and a clutch at the woman's dress. "'No,' said Mrs. Tretrick, looking out of the window. "'Only playin'. you're doing away?' suggested Carrie with a laugh. "'Let me play, too.' "'Mrs. Trethrick assented. "'Carrie flew into the next room and presently reappeared dragging a small trunk into which she gravely proceeded to pack her clothes. Mrs. Trethwick noticed that they were not many. A question or two regarding them brought out some further replies from the child, and before many minutes had elapsed, Mrs. Trethrick was in possession of all her earlier history. But, to do this, Mrs. Trethrick had been obliged to take Carrie upon her lap, pending the most confidential disclosures. They sat thus a long time after Mrs. Trethrick had apparently ceased to be interested in Carrie's disclosures, and when lost in thought, she allowed the child to rattle on unheeded, and ran her fingers to the scarlet curls. "'You don't hold me right, Mamma," said Carrie at last, after one or two uneasy shiftings of position. "'How should I hold you?' asked Mrs. Trethrick with a half-amused, half-embarrassed laugh. This way, said Carrie, curling up into position with one arm around Mrs. Trettrick's neck and her cheek resting on her bosom. This way, dear. After a little preparatory nestling, not unlike some small animal, she closed her eyes and went to sleep, scarcely daring to breathe in that artificial attitude. And then, whether from some occult sympathy in the touch or God best knows what, A sudden fancy began to thrill her. She began by remembering an old pain that she had forgotten, an old horror that she had resolutely put away all these years. She recalled days of sickness and distrust, days of an overshadowing fear, days of preparation for something that was to be prevented, that was prevented, with mortal agony and fear. She thought of a life that might have been, she dared not say had been, and wondered. It was six years ago. If it had lived, it would have been as old as Carrie. The arms which were folded loosely around the sleeping child began to tremble and tightened and clasped. And then the deep potential impulse came, and with a half sob, half sigh, she threw her arms out and drew the body of the sleeping child down, down, into her breast, down again and again, as if she would hide it in the grave dug there years before. And the gust that shook her passed, and then, ah me, the rain. A drop or two fell upon the curls of Carrie, and she moved uneasily in her sleep. But the woman soothed her again. It was so easy to do it now. And they sat there quiet and undisturbed, so quiet that they might have seemed incorporate of the lonely, silent house, the slowly declining sunbeams, and the general air of desertion and abandonment, yet a desertion that had in it nothing of age, decay, or despair. Colonel Starbottle waited at the Middletown Hotel all that night in vain, and the next morning, when Mr. Tretrick returned to his husks, he found the house vacant and untenanted except by moats and sunbeams. When it was fairly known that Mrs. Trethrick had run away, taking Mr. Trethrick's own child with her, there was some excitement and much diversity of opinion in Fiddletown. The Dutch flat intelligencer openly alluded to the forcible abduction of the child with the same freedom, and it is to be feared the same prejudice, with which it had criticized the abductor's poetry. All of Mrs. Trethrick's own sex and perhaps a few of the opposite sex, whose distinctive quality was not, however, very strongly indicated, fully coincided in the views of the intelligencer. The majority, however, evaded the moral issue that Mrs. Trethrick had shaken the red dust of Fiddletown from her dainty slippers was enough for them to know. They mourned the loss of the fair abductor more than her offense. They promptly rejected Trethrick as an injured husband and disconsolate father and even went so far as to openly cast discredit on the sincerity of his grief. They reserved an ironical condolence for Colonel Starbottle, overbearing that excellent man with untimely and demonstrative sympathy in barrooms, saloons, and other localities not generally deemed favorable to the display of sentiment. "'Yeah, she was as a skittish thing, Colonel,' said one sympathizer, with a fine affectation of gloomy concern, "'and great readiness of illustration. "'And it's kinder natural that she'd get away some day "'and stampede that there colt, "'but that she should shake you, colonel. "'Diet she should just shake you, is what gets me. "'And they do say that you just hung around that hotel all night "'and payrolled them corridors "'and heisted yourself up and down them stairs "'and meandered in and out of that plaza "'and all for nothing.' It was another generous and tenderly commiserating spirit that poured additional oil and wine on the colonel's wounds. The boys here let on that Mrs. Tretrick prevailed on ye to pack her trunk and a baby over from the house to the stage office, and that the chap as did go off with her thanked you and offered you two short bits and said as how he liked your looks and would employ you again. And now you say it ain't so? Well, I'll tell the boys it ain't so, and I'm glad I met you for stories do get around. Happily for Mrs. Tretrick's reputation, however, the Chinaman in Tretrick's employment, who was the only eyewitness of her flight, stated that she was unaccompanied, except by the child. He further deposed that, obeying her orders, he had stopped the Sacramento coach and secured a passage for herself and child to San Francisco. It was true that Afay's testimony was of no legal value, but nobody doubted it. "'Even those who were skeptical of the pagans' ability "'to recognize the sacredness of the truth "'admitted his passionless, unprejudiced, unconcern. "'But it would appear, "'from a hitherto unrecorded passage "'of this voracious chronicle, "'that herein they were mistaken. "'It was about six months "'after the disappearance of Mrs. Trethrick "'that Ah Fay, while working in Trethrick's lot, "'was hailed by two passing Chinamen. "'They were the ordinary mining coolies,' equipped with long poles and baskets for their usual pilgrimages. An animated conversation at once ensued between Afe and his brother Mongolians, a conversation characterized by that usual swill volubility and apparent animosity, which was at once the delight and scorn of the intelligent Caucasian who did not understand a word of it. Such, at least, was the feeling with which Mr. Trethrick on his veranda, and Colonel Starbottle, who was passing, "'regarded their heathenish jargon. "'The gallant colonel simply kicked them out of his way. "'The irate Tretteric, with an oath, "'threw a stone at the group and dispersed them, "'but not before one or two slips of yellow rice paper, "'marked with hieroglyphics, were exchanged, "'and a small parcel put into Ape's hands. "'When Ape opened this in the dim solitude of his kitchen, "'he found a little girl's apron freshly washed, ironed, and folded.' on the corner of the hem, with the initials C.T. Afei tucked it away in a corner of his blouse, and proceeded to wash his dishes in the sink with a smile of guileless satisfaction. Two days after this, Afei confronted his master. Me no likey fiddle-town. Me belly's sick. Me go now. Mr. Trethrick violently suggested a profane locality. Apé gazed at him placidly, and withdrew. Before leaving Fiddletown, however, he accidentally met Colonel Starbottle, and dropped a few incoherent phrases which apparently interested that gentleman. When he concluded, the colonel handed him a letter and a twenty-dollar gold piece. "'If you bring me an answer, I'll double that. Sabi? John?' Afay nodded. An interview equally accidental, with precisely the same result, took place between Afay and another gentleman, whom I suspect to have been the youthful editor of the Avalanche. Yet I regret to state that, after proceeding some distance on his journey, Afe calmly broke the seals of both letters, and after trying to read them upside down and sideways, finally divided them into accurate squares, and in this condition disposed of them to a brother celestial whom he met on the road, for a trifling gratuity." The agony of Colonel Starbottle on finding his wash bill made out on the unwritten side of one of these squares, and delivered to him with his weekly clean clothes, and the subsequent discovery that the remaining portions of his letter were circulated by the same method from the Chinese laundry of one Fung Tai Fiddletown, has been described to me as peculiarly affecting. Yet I am satisfied that a higher nature, rising above the levity induced by the mere contemplation of the insignificant details of this breach of trust, would find ample retributive justice in the difficulties that subsequently attended Afe's pilgrimage. On the road to Sacramento, he was twice playfully thrown from the top of the stagecoach by an intelligent but deeply intoxicated Caucasian, whose moral nature was shocked at riding with one addicted to opium smoking. At Hangtown, he was beaten by a passing stranger, purely an act of Christian super-irrigation. At Dutch Flat, he was robbed by well-known hands from unknown motives. At Sacramento, he was arrested on suspicion of being something or other, and discharged with a severe reprimand, possibly for not being it, and so delaying the course of justice. At San Francisco, he was freely stoned by children of the public schools, but, by carefully avoiding these monuments of enlightened progress, he at last reached, in comparative safety, the Chinese quarters, where his abuse was confined to the police and limited by the strong arm of the law. The next day he entered the wash-house of Chai Fook as an assistant, and on the following Friday was sent with a basket of clean clothes to Chai Fook's several clients. It was the usual foggy afternoon as he climbed the long windswept hill of California Street, one of those bleak, gray intervals that made the summer a misnomer to any but the liveliest San Franciscan fancy. "'There was no warmth or color in earth or sky, "'no light or shade within or without, "'only one monotonous, universal, neutral tint over everything. "'There was a fierce unrest in the wind-whipped streets. "'There was a dreary, vacant quiet in the gray houses. "'When Afe reached the top of the hill, "'the mission ridge was already hidden, "'and the chill sea-breeze made him shiver. "'As he put down his basket to rest himself,' It is possible that, to his defective intelligence and heathen experience, this God's own climate, as it was called, seemed to possess but scant tenderness, softness, or mercy. But it is possible that Afe illogically confounded this season with his old persecutors, the schoolchildren, who, being released from studious confinement at this hour, were generally most aggressive. So he hastened on. "'and turning a corner at last stopped before a small house. "'It was the usual San Franciscan urban cottage. "'There was the little strip of cold green shrubbery before it, "'the chilly, bare veranda, "'and above this, again, the grim balcony, "'on which no one sat. "'Afe rang the bell. "'A servant appeared, glanced at his basket, "'and reluctantly admitted him, "'as if he were some necessary domestic animal.' Afe silently mounted the stairs, and entering the open door of the front chamber, put down the basket, and stood passively on the threshold. A woman, who was sitting in the cold gray light of the window, with a child in her lap, rose listlessly, and came toward him. Afe instantly recognized Mrs. Trethrick, but not a muscle of his immobile face changed, nor did his slant eyes lighten as he met her own placidly. She evidently did not recognize him, as she began to count the clothes. But the child, curiously examining him, suddenly uttered a short, glad cry. Why, it's John, Mama. It's our old John. What we had in Biddletown. For an instant, Afe's eyes and teeth electrically lightened. The child clapped her hands and caught at his blouse. Then he said shortly, Me, John. Apé, Ali, same. Me, know you. How do, Mrs. Treplick dropped the clothes nervously and looked hard at Ave, wanting the quick-witted instinct of affection that sharpened Carrie's perception. She even then could not distinguish him above his fellows. With a recollection of past pain and an obscure suspicion of impending danger, she asked him when he had left Fiddletown. Longy time, no likey Fiddletown, no likey Teplick, likey San Plisco likey-washy, likey-tally. Please, laconics, please, Mrs. Tretrick. She did not stop to consider how much an imperfect knowledge of English added to his curt directness and sincerity. But she said, Don't tell anybody you've seen me, and took out her pocketbook. book eh? without looking at it, saw that it was nearly empty. eh? without examining the apartment, saw that it was scantily furnished. "'Afe,' without removing his eyes from blank vacancy, "'saw that both Mrs. Trethrick and Carrie were poorly dressed. "'Yet it is my duty to state that Afe's long fingers "'closed promptly and firmly over the half dollar "'which Mrs. Trethrick extended to him.' "'Then he began to fumble in his blouse "'with a series of extraordinary contortions. "'After a few moments, "'he extracted from apparently no particular place,' a child's apron, which he laid upon the basket with the remark, One-piecey washman-flagety. Then he began anew his fumblings and contortions. At last his efforts were rewarded by his producing, apparently from his right ear, a many-folded piece of tissue paper. Unwrapping this carefully, he at last disclosed two twenty-dollar gold pieces, which he handed to Mrs. Trethrick YOU LEAVEY MONEY TOP SIDE FIDDLETOWN. ME FINDY MONEY, ME FETCHY MONEY TO YOU, ALL LADY. BUT I LEFT NO MONEY ON THE TOP OF THE BUREAU, JOHN, SAID MRS. TRETHRICK EARNESTLY. THERE MUST BE SOME MISTAKE. IT BELONGS TO SOME OTHER PERSON. TAKE IT BACK, JOHN. AH, FAY'S BROW DARKENED. HE DREW AWAY FROM MRS. TRETHRICK'S EXTENDED HAND, and began hastily to gather up his basket. Me no take ye back, no. By and by policeman he catch ye me, he say, God damn thief, catch ye flouty dollar, come to jaily. Me no take ye back, you leave ye money topside Bullo, Fiddletown, me fetch ye money, you. Me no take ye back. Mrs. Tratwick hesitated. In the confusion of her flight, "'She might have left her money in the manner,' he had said. "'In any event, she had no right to jeopardize "'this honest Chinaman's safety by refusing it. "'So she said, "'Very well, John, I will keep it. "'But you must come again and see me.' "'Here Mrs. Tretrick hesitated "'with a new and sudden revelation "'of the fact that any man could wish to see "'any other than herself. "'And, and Carrie, too.' "'Apé's face lightened.' He even uttered a short ventriloquistic laugh without moving his mouth. Then, shouldering his basket, he shut the door carefully and slid quietly down the stairs. In the lower hall he, however, found an unexpected difficulty in opening the front door, and, after fumbling vainly at the lock for a moment, looked around for some help or instruction. But the Irish handmaid who had let him in was contemptuously oblivious of his needs, and did not appear. There occurred a mysterious and painful incident, which I shall simply record without attempting to explain. On the hall table a scarf, evidently the property of the servant before alluded to, was lying. As Apé tried the lock with one hand, the other rested lightly on the table. Suddenly, and apparently of its own volition, the scarf began to creep slowly toward Apé's hand. From Apé's hand it began to creep up his sleeve slowly, with an insinuating snake-like motion, and then disappeared somewhere in the recesses of his blouse. Without betraying the least interest or concern in this phenomenon, Ape still repeated his experiments upon the lock. A moment later, the tablecloth of red damask, moved by apparently the same mysterious impulse, slowly gathered itself under Ape's fingers, and sinuously disappeared by the same hidden channel. What further mystery might have followed, I cannot say. "'for at this moment Afe discovered the secret of the lock "'and was enabled to open the door, "'coincident with the sound of footsteps upon the kitchen stairs. "'Afe did not hasten his movements, "'but patiently shouldering his basket, "'closed the door carefully behind him again "'and stepped forth into the thick, encompassing fog "'that now shrouded earth and sky. "'From her high casement window, "'Mrs. Tretherick watched Afe's figure "'until it disappeared in the gray cloud.' In her present loneliness, she felt a keen sense of gratitude toward him, and may have ascribed to the higher emotions and the consciousness of a good deed that certain expansiveness of the chest and swelling of the bosom, that was really due to the hidden presence of the scarf and tablecloth under his blouse. For Mrs. Trethick was still poetically sensitive. As the grey fog deepened into night, she drew Carrie closer toward her, and, above the prattle of the child... "'pursued a bane of sentimental and egotistic recollection, "'at once bitter and dangerous. "'The sudden apparition of Afe linked her again "'with the past life at Piddletown. "'Over the dreary interval between, "'she was now wandering, "'a journey so piteous, willful, thorny, and useless, "'that it was no wonder that at last Carrie stopped suddenly "'in the midst of her voluble confidences "'to throw her small arms around the woman's neck "'and bid her not to cry.' Heaven forfend that I should use a pen that should be ever dedicated to an exposition of unalterable moral principle to transcribe Mrs. Trethrick's own theory of this interval and episode with its feeble palliations, its illogical deductions, its fond excuses, and weak apologies. It would seem, however, that her experience had been hard. Her slender stock of money was soon exhausted. At Sacramento, she found that the composition of verse— although appealing to the highest emotions of the human heart, and compelling her editorial breast to the noblest commendation in the editorial pages, was singularly inadequate to defray the expenses of herself and Carrie. Then she tried the stage, but failed signally. Possibly her conception of the passions was different from that which obtained with a sacramental audience, but it was certain that her charming presence, so effective at short range, was not sufficiently pronounced for the footlights." She had admirers enough in the green room, but awakened no abiding affection among the audience. In this strait, it occurred to her that she had a voice, a contralto of no very great compass or cultivation, but singularly sweet and touching, and she finally obtained position in a church choir. She held it for three months, greatly to her pecuniary advantage, and, it is said, much to the satisfaction of the gentlemen in the back pews, who faced toward her during the singing... Of the last hymn. I remember her quite distinctly at this time. The light that slanted to the oriel of Saint Dives' choir was wont to fall very tenderly on her beautiful head, with its stacked masses of deerskin-colored hair, on the low black arches of her brows, and to deepen the pretty fringes that shaded her eyes of Genoa velvet. Very pleasant it was to watch the opening and shutting of that small straight mouth, with its quick revelation of little white teeth and to see the foolish blood faintly deep in her satin cheek as you watched. For Mrs. Trethrick was very sweetly conscious of admiration, and, like most pretty women, gathered herself under your eye like a racer under the spur. And then, of course, there came trouble. I have it from the soprano, a little lady who possessed even more than the usual unprejudiced judgment of her sex, that Mrs. Trethrick's conduct was simply shameful.' that her conceit was unbearable, that, if she considered the rest of the choir as slaves, she, the soprano, would like to know it, that her conduct on Easter Sunday with the basso had attracted the attention of the whole congregation, and that she herself had noticed Dr. Cope twice look up during the service, that her, the soprano's, friends, had objected to her singing in the choir with a person who had been on the stage. But she had waived this, Yet she had it from the best authority that Mrs. Trethrick had run away from her husband, and that this red-haired child, who sometimes came in the choir, was not her own. The tenor confided to me behind the organ that Mrs. Trethrick had a way of sustaining a note at the end of a line in order that her voice might linger longer with the congregation, an act that could be attributed only to a defective moral nature. That as a man—he was a very popular dry-goods clerk on weekdays— and sang a good deal from apparently behind his eyebrows on the Sabbath. That as a man, sir, he would put up with it no longer. The basso alone, a short German, with a heavy voice, for which he seemed reluctantly responsible, and rather grieved at his possession, stood up for Miss Tretrick, and averred that they were jealous of her because she was pretty. The climax was at last reached in an open quarrel, "'wherein Mrs. Tretrick used her tongue "'with such precision of statement and epithet "'that the soprano burst into hysterical tears. "'It had to be supported from the choir "'by her husband and the tenor. "'This act was marked intentionally to the congregation "'by the omission of the usual soprano solo. "'Mrs. Trethrick went home flushed with triumph, "'but on reaching her room frantically told Carrie "'that they were beggars henceforward, "'that she, her mother, "'had just taken the very bread out of her darling's mouth, "'and ended by bursting into a flood of penitent tears. "'They did not come so quickly as in her old poetical days, "'but when they came, they stung deeply. "'She was roused by a formal visit from a vestryman, "'one of the music committee. "'Mrs. Trethrick dried her long lashes, "'put on a new neck-ribbon, and went down to the parlour. "'She stayed there two hours, "'a fact that might have occasioned some remark, "'but that the vestryman was married.' "'and had a family of grown-up daughters. "'When Mrs. Tretrick returned to her room, "'she sang to herself in the glass and scolded Carrie, "'but she retained her place in the choir. "'It was not long, however. "'In due course of time, "'her enemies received a powerful addition "'to their forces in the committeeman's wife. "'That lady called upon several of the church members "'and on Dr. Cope's family. "'The result was that, "'at a later meeting of the music committee, Mrs. Trethrick's voice was declared inadequate to the size of the building, and she was invited to resign. She did so. She had been out of a situation for two months, and her scant means were almost exhausted, when Ah Fay's unexpected treasure was tossed into her lap. Thanks for joining us for part one of an episode of Fiddletown by Bret Hart. Join us in just a few more days for part two of Bret Hart's an episode of Fiddletown. We always appreciate reviews, so if you have a moment, please do send us a kind review. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon.